the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Did you know that we have thousands of unpaid caregivers across this country, some as young as age 15, and the impact on their health can be tremendous. There's a new podcast that you will want to tune into. Also, how is dental care related to sex? Plus, lots of terms these days on how we express ourselves. I'll review those. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. now, Maureen's Health Headline. Just want to talk a little bit about uh, COVID and just experiences with COVID. What are your experiences? Feel free to text me your experiences. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because so many people, and I've said this all along, have not listened to their physicians or the medical community or the scientific community. Rather, they've listened to politicians or uh, people on Facebook, basically, who decide all of a sudden that they are highly educated and that they can provide scientific education and speak to research studies or, or quite frankly, make up their own research studies. So uh, I don't know if you've taken an Uber lately, but I did recently. And uh, so my Uber driver, I, I've taken a few, in fact, recently. And um, and it's still, when you sign up for Uber, it still says, I'm wearing my mask. Oh, yes, I am. Um, you know, confirm that you wear your mask. But as of Monday of last week, Uber drivers no longer need to wear their mask. And and so one driver that I had, I actually, um, it was like a, a seven-minute ride. And then I was going to add on at a stop that was 45 minutes longer. So that was a good ride uh, for them. And, um, but I said, you know, not really comfortable with you without a mask. And they wanted to drive me to, you know, on the second trip, the 45 minute trip. And they were the ones who said, it's a good mask, but they weren't wearing their mask. He said, because of freedom. And I said, well, for me, it's about health. So he really wanted me that second ride. And I said, well, I'm hemming and hawing, thinking about it. I don't know. Maybe I'm going to Maybe I'm going to stop there. Maybe I'm going to stay longer than I said. And anyhow, then I said, listen, I have to be honest with you. I'm not comfortable driving with you for 45 minutes, freedom or not, without a mask on. And then he said, you know, at the end of the day, cash is king. <laughs> Money talks. And uh, so he said, oh, I'll put a mask on. You want me to put a mask on? I'll put it on. If you, you know, give me the, the ride, uh, the 45 minute additional trip. And I said, sure, that sounds good. I mean, I had my window down. I was still a little bit nervous because COVID is airborne. And so, you know, how long is the guy driving? But how long are these Uber drivers riding around without a mask anyway? One-way masking does work, but two-way masking is better. But I always open my window, and so should you. But um, I then had another Uber ride, and he did not have his mask on, and I wasn't going that far. But you know, he and I had a very candid conversation. He told me that he was fully vaccinated, which the definition of fully vaccinated by the CDC means boosted. So he had mentioned that he'd had his booster because he was concerned about his family and he didn't want them to get it, but he was no longer going to be wearing the mask because Uber said he didn't have to, or the ride share. I probably shouldn't say <laughs> which one. It might not have been Uber. It could have been Lyft. I don't know. It was one of them. Could have been a taxi, whatever. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, we had a very candid conversation and I said, you know, you're basically listening to politicians who are looking for votes in the midterm election um, to get your scientific information. But the bottom line is that there is a surge. We have actually 75 percent. The the current incidence is actually 75 percent of what it was when we had the Delta variant uh, over 60 percent of. Americans and Canadians have gotten COVID. 75% of children have gotten COVID. We do have some um, Im immunity, community immunity, but you can also get COVID again and again and again. And some research studies have shown that you can get COVID after 23 days after you've already had it. Um, on average, um, in certain communities, it can be about 35 days where you can get COVID again. Some people don't want to get COVID ever. It's like me. Um, never mind getting it twice because there are risks of long-term, long-haul symptoms. Um, there's also, and we're going to get Dr. John Weisler 
back on the show to talk about this, about heart complications that are being seen in COVID patients a year later. And so you don't want to um, get COVID really. And, and as I was explaining to this particular driver, um, you know, why would you want to be out for five days of work? You know, I said, if I'm out for five days of work, I'm actually going to get paid. (laughs) I can actually work virtually, but you can't. Um, and you know, why would you want to take that risk? Because oftentimes people, it's, it is more than a cold. A lot of people are reporting that it is not a mild cold. They're having fever and muscle aches and, and really bad coughing there. It's interrupting their sleep. Um, you know, I have a patient who's pregnant who got COVID and she also has a three-year-old and, you know, it's, it's exhausting to, you know, try and parent your three-year-old when, and also worry that your three-year-old is going to get COVID. I have another family where he got it and then his wife got it and they were worried sick about their two little ones. One was vaccinated, one was not, um, but they were testing all the time. They didn't have any family to help them at all. Um, so you get, you get much more symptomatic than a lot of people are claiming, which is just what, no big deal. It's just a mild cold, but a lot of people are reporting it is much more than a mild cold. So with this particular driver, I was talking to him about wastewater and how the rates of wastewater has, um, uh, finding COVID in wastewater because we're doing so much less testing now. We're not actually able to track the incidence of, of COVID. And so they're looking at different ways to actually see where the, the rises in case counts are. And they look at wastewater. And I was explaining that to him. He had no idea about that. And also the fact that these people are getting into his car. And, you know, I said, you really need to, um, you know, have a supply of masks in your car and offer that to the drivers, to the riders, sorry, because they'll be breathing in the car and you're not going to have a mask on and you're actually placing yourself at tremendous risk by allowing, you know, the freedom for people not to wear a mask in your, uh, in your car. And, you know, I have to say, I mean, I have been known to talk a dog off a meat wagon, (laughs) um, but I also sing to the choir, but rarely, (laughs) rarely do I feel like I've made some headway and, and actually changed somebody's mind. But we had such a great conversation. He was really open to it because I do some work in COVID consulting. And, you know, you know, I'm t- talking to him about what I'm seeing on the front lines these days. And, you know, we had a very candid conversation, a great conversation. And we, I was dispelling myths for him. And, you know, he was coming up with all the myths, like you can get COVID when you're vaccinated you know, once you get a vaccine, it's like myth. Um, there were so many myths that he was coming up with, but at the end of, of the ride, he was like, wow, I, you know, I really wish I had a mask and I, and I'm, you've really changed my mind and I'm, I'm going to start wearing a mask again. I know a lot of people don't like to hear me say that, um, I'm going to wear a mask or I don't really like to tell people what to do. It's just not my style, but you know, I would recommend if people ask me, I certainly say I would wear a mask because, you know, masks work. They're one part of mitigation strategy that can protect your health, can protect others around you. And, you know, oftentimes I see people and I, you know, nurses were assessing people all the time and you might see somebody that's, you know, of advancing age, overweight, male, because there's a higher incidence of COVID in men, um, you know, running around, no mask, maybe thinking, you know, with the, that they, they're in their fifties or sixties, probably have some hypertension. So they have three or four comorbidities right there. Maybe they have a sedentary lifestyle. This is just what I'm seeing, you know, and it's, it's male or female or, um, gender non-binary, it's, it's anybody with advancing age. That's the number one comorbidity. People are stressed in COVID. That's another comorbidity. It's a risk factor for getting COVID. I mean, there are so many things. You still don't want to get it. I know that so many people have already gotten it already. And many, many, many people have survived, but many, many people have died and continue to die at a rate of about 600 a day in the U.S. anyway, and about 60 a day in Canada. And it's, it's needless, it's preventive and there are vaccines and vaccines work. 
And maybe as time goes on, people will realize that maybe it will become less political because most unfortunately, this was a pandemic of politicians. And it's sad that it became politicized and that that many people did not listen to the scientists, the doctors, and other healthcare professionals who saw what it's like and continue to see what it's like on the front lines. Once again, here we are talking health because your health is your wealth. Um, thanks so much for your text messages, one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. Now, I did talk to you a little bit about uh, or mention that somebody, more than somebody, but this person has a big voice and a lot of money. <laughs> Bill Gates warns we've not seen the worst of COVID, says that there's way above 5% risk of pandemic generating more transmissive and even more fatal coronavirus variants. I have a couple of questions here. I'll bring the, maybe combine the two of them together in the interest of time. If, if, if or more likely when I get Omicron, what do I do and how can I be prepared and somebody else asks, hey, Maureen, do I really need a booster dose of the COVID-19 vaccine? Is it really necessary? So I think these two questions are actually related to one another. Definitely, you need the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, <laughs> um, as you know, the COVID vaccines made by Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, have proven to protect people from severe illness, hospitalization, and death, and the ability to prevent infection with any symptoms wanes or goes down over time. And so that is the reason for the booster dose. The booster dose can remind the immune system, your immune system, how to fight off the coronavirus. And in fact, data from the current surge of cases caused by the Omicron Omicron variant and the stealth variant shows that people who had received a booster dose before they got COVID-19 in December or January have had a much lower chance of serious symptoms that would lead to um, hospitalization or an urgent care visit or um, a visit to the emergency department. So booster doses are now officially recommended for everybody who is 12 years old and up who has received their primary series, their second dose of Pfizer or Moderna more than five months ago, and um, everyone else 18 and up who received their dose of J&J &J or Johnson & Johnson vaccine more than two months ago. So um, it, there's also, there are second boosters for um, some people as well. So people over the age of 50. Um, anyway, so it's very important that you remain protected, but it's also important to, you know, um, stay healthy, stay well, wear a mask, stay, do not mingle with the public. This was, this is some of the educational points I was giving to the Uber driver who welcomed them. I want to say he was very welcoming of these suggestions. Also do not eat. I'm sorry. Do not eat indoors indoors at restaurants. It is a breeding ground. In fact, I, I met a friend for dinner the other night and they suggested a particular restaurant and we went in and I said, I can't stay here. And this person, this friend of mine couldn't either. That person was traveling and did not want to test positive, but it was hot inside of the restaurant. It was crowded. It was a small restaurant and, or not too big. Anyway, I guess that means the same thing. <laughs> I mentioned I'm blonde, right? Anyway, um, it wasn't that small, but it wasn't that big either. But there were lots of people in there and the tables were really close together. And um, they finished their wine and, and then we went to next door and actually had a lovely dinner outside underneath a heat lamp. And so I really am a big promoter of restaurants getting heat lamps. But you know what? Cut down on your alcohol, sleep well, eat a nutritious diet, try to manage your stress. Those are ways to actually simply, you know, be in the best condition possible. Should you get Omicron? I hope you don't, but uh, should you get Omicron? Anyway, it's really important to manage stress because stress uh, 
lack of management of stress can have a big impact on your immunity and your immune system and actually prevent you from fighting Omicron and other viruses as effectively or optimally as your immune system was made to do so. So just take care of yourself, stay well, and stay away. I wonder how many of you out there are caregivers to loved ones or or friends, family members. Teva Canada is the world's largest medicine cabinet offering generic, specialty, biosimilar, and over-the-counter medicines to Canadians, and they also provide resources to patients and caregivers. As part of its commitment to the more than 8 million caregivers across Canada, Teva Canada has been looking at ways for Canadians to explore a brighter future for healthcare. How can care be reimagined for the betterment of patients and caregivers at all stages of life? To move the conversation forward throughout the months of April and May, they've started a dialogue of shared experiences from some of Canada's brightest minds, caregivers themselves, patients, and healthcare professionals, to create a new prescription for care. They've developed an incredible five-part podcast series where notable healthcare thought leaders are sharing their views on what a new prescription for care would look like. The host, Mark Stolo, is the CEO of People Before Patients, a movement that invites everyone to engage in healthcare reform. According to the General Social Survey, caregiving and care receiving, compiled pre-pandemic and released in 2022, one in four Canadians aged 15 or older are providing care for family members or friends with a long-term condition, a physical or mental disability, or problems related to aging. More than 20,000 respondents polled represented 31 million Canadians. Women account for almost two-thirds of caregivers providing 20 or more hours of care per week, and those providing that level of care are more likely to report their caregiving responsibilities to be stressful or very stressful. A further 86% of respondents who provide more than 20 hours of care per, per week felt they were unable to spend as much time with their family and more than three-quarters reported spending less time participating in social activities and with friends. Joining me on the line, we hear from geriatrician Dr. Nicole Didick, who shares what she has learned about health and healthcare, working with people in later life. She stresses the importance of honoring the person by understanding what they want, a desire that she believes is timeless. She envisions a healthcare system of the future that will need to be more flexible, meet people where they are, and value what they value. She's also committed to taking the mystery out of aging with her website, The Wrinkle, a source of information for fellow healthcare professionals, elders, and children of aging parents. She joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Didick. Hello, Maureen. Thanks for having me. How are me. you? Oh, my I'm pleasure. Well. Thank you. Oh, yeah. good, good. That's great. I love your website, The Wrinkle. <laughs> That's oh, thanks. Great name. Yeah, the wrinkle.ca. Yeah. <laughs> Not about skincare. <laughs> no. We, no. We can all but... relate to the wrinkles that are appearing sure. fast and furiously. Yeah. Um, they can be. Well, your mm-hmm. podcast um, drops mm-hmm. tonight. Is that, that's, is that right? It, you know what? I think it dropped on Tuesday. But okay. um, it's still available. Yeah, it's still available to uh, listen to. And then, uh, yeah, there's a forum on May 10th where all That's of the uh, participants are going to be available. So, yeah, it's very exciting. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. great. You can listen to Dr. Uh, Didick's podcast still on yeah. com forward slash on Canada forward slash prescription for care podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so that's awesome. So mm-hmm. healthcare in Canada, I mean, this is just, just incredible. It's just shocking how mm-hmm. many people are acting as unpaid, may I ask, caregivers for family, mm-hmm. friends, loved ones across the country. I mean, it, it's really a shame. It's really a shame on our healthcare system that this is what is required. And, and those people who are doing 20 or more hours a week are not participating in, in social activities or, or they're basically their own life. They're probably missing out on on uh, exercise and other activities and work Mm -hmm. potentially and you know what's it doing to their quality of life and their health as well it's just a vicious cycle 
It can be. It can be. And, you know, I think um, it's really interesting and I really like the focus on the caregiver because in my work, so I'm a geriatrician, I'm a specialist who looks after older adults, and I feel like I'm always seeing the patient, but then also their caregiver. So, you know, as you mentioned, it could be a child, it could be an adult child, or sometimes even a younger, um, a younger, you know, person who's a teenager or a young adult, um, or it could be a sibling or a spouse. And when so when we're treating a patient, we're treating the caregiver as well. They're kind of like a dyad, you know, and sometimes it, it even gets expanded to like the whole family and the whole community. So it's really hard to look at an older adult with healthcare needs without looking at everybody around them. But yeah, especially the caregiver. And I think you're right. I mean, caregiving is a sacrifice. So there's definitely people who are giving up on other activities that they should be doing for their own health or just for their own, um, you know, for their own happiness. But I think, too, I mean, I, I do meet a lot of people who think that caregiving is, um, is a role that they enjoy and that they cherish, you know, and they think it's very important, but, it's, but the support isn't there for them to do that role the way they want to do. So, um, so there's a lot of gaps when it comes to supporting our unpaid caregivers, for sure, and that's very obvious when it comes to those who are caring for older adults. You're, you're absolutely correct. In fact, in my clinical practice, I've heard from so many patients who are caregivers for their spouses, typically. And mm-hmm. they'll say, you know, I might suggest getting somebody else in. They have, Money's not an object. And they'll say, no, mm-hmm. no, it's my job. I want to do this. You know, this is, this is why I had one lovely gentleman, Irish gentleman say, you know, she's my girl. And, I, you know, nobody else oh. is going to take care of her but me. You know, and warming. Yeah. yeah, this is somebody yeah. who's suffering with dementia. And, you know, mm. it's, it, it, it's, it, you said you're correct. There's a lack of support. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the people who they have this desire to care for their loved ones, and yet it still can exhaust them in spite of that mm-hmm. desire. But you have a desire mm-hmm. to change the healthcare system or the future of the healthcare system. And you say it needs to be more flexible. What do you mean by that? Well, that's a great example, that example you just gave of the the um, spouse who wants to be the one who's looking after his wife. And okay. so it's, you know, when we, it's kind of like, and this goes back to our medical training, right? We sort of learn, okay, this is how you diagnose and this is the treatment. And so you just offer this treatment and we kind of offer, you know, the same treatment to everyone, but we don't always ask them, well, what do you need? You know, like what fits for you? What that? What do you value most? What matters most to you? So for this care, and it's the same with caregivers. So we might say, well, you know, you could you could have someone come in for an hour uh, once a week, and then you can go off and and you know do the shopping. And mm-hmm. and so the caregiver might say, well, that doesn't really help me. You know, what would help me would be that you know someone could come and mow the lawn while I'm with my girl, you know, or maybe Mm -hmm. they could cook or maybe they could do the dishes or just do something else. So we kind of have a one size fits all system that we offer to people, but it doesn't always fit. And it might be, you know, I would love it if we could find a way to uh, really drill down on what do people need and then make it happen instead of offering what we have. And if it's a square peg in a round hole, well, you know, too bad. Um, that, that's what I think we should be able to do is to have that flexibility and to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. It, it reminds me of another, um, patient <laughs> couple, um, <laughs> who this, you know, it's typically women who are the caregivers, but I, but I've been speaking to a number of men recently and, and this gentleman said, you know, my wife, you know, before, um, she got dementia, you know, really looked yeah. after herself very well. And oftentimes people who are, are suffering with Alzheimer's disease or other forms of dementia, you know, the, the mm-hmm. hygiene is something that goes. And, and, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, I just don't feel comfortable doing her hair or, you know, mm-hmm. making sure that her clothing is matching and, you know, and it's the right thing, the outfit that she would pick out. Somehow I never pick mm-hmm. out the right outfit, but it, it's often, or it could be a desire that somebody has for somebody else. Like I would imagine, you know, I, mm-hmm. I had suggested, you know, maybe one of your children could take your, um, 
wife off to the hairdresser and, Mm -hmm. and then go to get a manicure or pedicure, you know, do Mm -hmm. some things like that, that he wasn't comfortable doing or assisting with, Mm -hmm. but somebody else, a friend might be uh, Mm -hmm. comfortable doing that. And so I I can see where you have added help, um, you know, whether it be in the form of a friend or, or paid caregiver to come into the home. And so why don't we have like a hairdresser on our um, roster of home care providers? You know, like maybe we could have uh, something like that, or we could have pet sitters, or we could have all these roles that are just integral to daily life and that, you know, caregivers have to add on to what they want to do, which is be, you know, be there with the person and do certain types of care. And so, yeah, I think, I think in the healthcare system of the future, if we could have that creativity and that sort of out of the box thinking that's, that's triggered and inspired by what the client and family wants, um, Mm -hmm. then I think, I think we'll have, you know, and I think that will contribute to better health because we'll have people who have less of that stress, as you described. Um, you know, we know that caregivers have can have health consequences themselves. Um, they can even have a higher rate of dying if they're if they're caregivers in some situations. So, um, you know, I think if we if we support caregivers better and we're more flexible, I think I think it'll uh, it'll take some of the pressure off of the whole healthcare system. Absolutely, you That's make such vision. a great point. Yeah, you make, it's not a miracle such, drug or something, right? It's practical. No, mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But you make such a great point. I don't think people, okay. many caregivers, realize, and and I, I mean, I can't even imagine the fifteen-year-olds who are out there mm-hmm. caring for their parents. Or, um, but yeah. you know, the stress on the caregiver can be tremendous. And I had a couple in my clinical practice, and. The, the wife was just amazing and, and looked after her mm-hmm. husband with Alzheimer's, you know, so incredibly mm-hmm. well. And then she had a stroke and I, oh, I just felt so oh, terrible no. that that had mm-hmm. happened uh, to her. But um, mm-hmm. I had another couple and she was caring for her husband and her husband had always loved music and, and that had gone uh, from his life. And I said, well, why not just try, try to see if somebody mm-hmm. can, you know, he can play music. Um, with a group. Mm-hmm. And, and she said, Oh, they'll never, they'll never take him. You know, he can't tie his shoes. And, um, mm-hmm. but lo and behold, they found a choir for him to join and he sings along and it's a, it's a bit of a break for her and wow. he gets tremendous enjoyment out of it as well. And, and people are patient, you know, not everybody sings beautifully in some of these choirs. <laughs> he happens to. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh, good. Oh, that's a bonus. Let's, Wonderful. Let's be yeah. real. Let's be real. Nobody uh-huh. is um, actually performing. Um, uh-huh. But <laughs> I mean, you know, in, in some of these community choirs. Um, yeah. My guest is geriatrician, Dr. Nicole Diddick, and she shares what she has learned about health and healthcare. We're talking about caregiving in Canada. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Diddick. Um I, and uh, I, this next this next texter, I don't think actually listened to who is caregiving across Canada because they never would have written this fairly what I'm going to call an ignorant text message. And it starts off with, "Please don't get offended, Doctor Diddick, <laughs> that I'm reading this, but it's awful." <laughs> a geriatrician, lay it on no me. Less. Yeah, fair. <laughs> Hi, Marie. No problem. People should know when they're. Here it is. Hi, Maureen. People should know when their time is up. There's no point in keeping old people around an extra month or year. It's pointless. Make peace with God and live with dignity before your body, your brain breaks down so far you can't make a proper decision. COVID is not such a bad thing. Moves people off the planet faster or get a pill for people to take once they reach their past due or expiration date. Thanks, Don. No thanks, Don. Um, you know, did, did Don listen to the fact that there are 15 year olds oh, caring God. for their parents out there who yeah. their parents might be 40 or people right. have chronic illnesses, chronic diseases that they are living with and quite frankly, living happily with. And mm-hmm. you know what? There's very few people who are ready to go. I mean, it, it's right. tough. Yeah, and, um, it is. Yeah. But you know what, Don? Just... Go ahead. I, I got something to say to Don. No, I think Marine, but you know, I think that that's, uh, that's Don's perspective. And you know what, that if that's how Don feels, he should tell his loved ones and the people in his life 
how he feels because that, you know, I can respect that. I think that, you know, that text does sound like it's tinged with ageism for sure, which is a, which is a real problem. But the sentiment, you know, I mean, if there will be some people who feel like they don't want to, um, you know, be cared for if they're in a certain condition. And so Mm -hmm. that it does kind of make our point in a way, I think, because if we really find out what matters to people, you know, some people will say, yes, if I have dementia, you know, if I'm living with Alzheimer's and it's advanced, uh, maybe that person doesn't want antibiotics if they get a severe infection. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't want to go to the hospital emergency department. You know, maybe they want to stay at home and have a different kind of care. So I think mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I think that, that what Don has to say is, 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 it does have a kernel of what we're saying as well is that, you know, if we really, if we can really get to what a person wants, we can give them the most appropriate care and the most comfortable care for them. So, um, exactly. you know, I don't, yeah, also- I don't agree that people should take a pill or they should, you know, off get off the planet once they're past a certain age. But I think that they should be allowed to express what they do want as they get older and if they develop an illness. And, um, and we should be able to give that instead of, again, kind of the one size fits all solution. Yeah, exactly. Don's probably an old guy, but let me say this. <laughs> um, he <laughs> no. probably needs a little education on the mystery of well, aging. And so little. quickly, we've got, yeah. about a, about, we've got about 30 seconds left. Tell me about oh, your great. website, TheWrinkle.ca. Yeah. Thanks, Maureen. So yeah, TheWrinkle.ca, and I have a YouTube channel, uh, which is my name and The Wrinkle as well. And basically, this is uh, over 20 years as a geriatrician, I found myself kind of telling the same stories and giving the same advice about aging. So things like incontinence and how your memory changes and bowel movements and medications and vitamins, all that stuff. And I've tried to boil it down into um, blog posts and uh, short videos that I think are really, um, you know, they're kind of the gems of what I give out in my day-to-day practice. And people can get it all on my website and my YouTube channel. And they can leave comments there and leave me requests if there's something they want to see as well. That's wonderful. That's Dr. Nicole mm-hmm. Didick, D-I-D-Y-K, because the mm-hmm. YouTube channel is in her name. So thank you so much mm-hmm. for um, joining me on the program tonight and actually dispelling some of these mysteries about aging for people like Dawn. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> thanks, it. Thanks, Maureen. Oh, thank you. And so good much. luck with the podcast. I look forward to listening mm-hmm. to that. You can find a new podcast episode every Tuesday between April 5th and May 3rd. It's at www.tevacanada, T-E-V-A, tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. In addition, Teva Canada wants you to be a part of the conversation. They want your ideas, big and small, that would support caregivers and change the way we view and deliver healthcare in Canada. Check out the prescription for care survey at tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. In 10 minutes, you can have a say in the kind of health and care you'd like to see in the future. You're also invited to a special live virtual panel event on May 10th that brings their podcast experts together, along with keynote speaker and former TSN host Michael Landsberg, who is a fierce mental health advocate and caregiver. It promises to be an intriguing look at how health and wellness experts envision a more evolved healthcare system. That's Prescription for Care. Sign up for their Facebook live event on May 10th and join them for a free virtual panel discussion on May 10th at 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time featuring notable healthcare thought leaders and keynote speaker Michael Landsberg. The panel will share experiences and explore ideas for the future of Canadian healthcare. Again, to listen to the podcast, participate in the survey, or register for the free event, it's www.tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Marie McGrath hosting this program for you. We've got lots to talk about in this hour. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, depression uh, very shortly. Uh, but right now, I want to talk to you about a, a group of viruses, the human papillomavirus. They can cause warts on differential parts of your body. There are more than 200 different types and about 40 of them are spread through direct sexual contact with somebody who has the virus and they can also spread through intimate skin-to-skin contact. Now you wouldn't think that 
going to your dentist would be important in terms of HPV, but Dr. Cheryl Cable, who is a maxillofacial prosthodontist and president of the Canadian Association of Women Dentists and associate professor of the University of Alberta, joins me on the line to tell us why it is important to go to your dentist. Good evening, Dr. Cable. Good evening, Maureen. Thanks for having me on. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining me. So regular oral examinations by dentists were something that went a little bit by the wayside during the pandemic, um, in part because there was a fear around COVID-19, especially that close contact um, with going to your dentist and people were just afraid to even leave their house, let alone uh, go and have their teeth examined or their teeth cleaned. But why is it important that regular oral examinations occur? Well, unlike pap tests and cervical exams that way, which we're regularly scheduled with, there's really no regular scheduled exam or screening tool that we have for head and neck cancer. So you have to go in directly to have someone look at the base of your tongue, look at your tonsillar pillars. That's not something that normal people do on a regular basis themselves in the mirror, but having somebody who's got extensive head and neck exam uh, education and the ability to look at that with a, a good light and access to care is key in, in early finding of these disease states, but it's also key in making sure that treatment is continued. So if there is intervention that's needed, say a referral to a surgeon or a pathologist for further assessment, then we can quickly move things along. The last thing we want is not having things detected. Exactly. Early detection is critical in so many cancers and especially head and neck cancers, but people wouldn't necessarily associate human papillomavirus or HPV with head and neck cancers. And what is the incidence? So right now, when we look at trends across North America, we're looking at incidents. We know that right now there are 14.1 million new cases of cancer worldwide in males and females. But of that proportion, we're seeing over 570,000 cases contributed to to HPV. And of that, 90% of all those cancers are part of this specific nine valent, which we've got with our new vaccine that's come out in Canada. So the incidence is we've got we've got an increasing rate of head and neck cancers due to HPV. So right now in Canada, about 25 to 35% of the new head and neck cancer cases that we're seeing are due to HPV. And the thing that should scare a lot of us is that men are 4.5 times more likely to present with this cancer than women. Wow, I did not realize that at all. And now, most people what have is, no idea. Absolutely. Um, and to what do we attribute this drastic or dramatic increase in the prevalence of HPV-related oropharynx cancers and head and neck cancers? So we know that um, historically we talked about this as being an STD, but I think we need to look at an expanded scope of awareness. So we can transfer this virus through saliva, and it's on your tonsillar pillars, and this virus can stay dormant in your body up to 30 years. So it can be transferred by body fluids, can be transferred by saliva, can be transferred from mother to infant. Uh, There's even evidence of it being transferred into the amniotic fluid within babies. But when we look at initial, initial exposure and then we look at the conversion of this virus into an active disease, so I love the conversation you had with Dr. Vivian Brown, where she talked about 75% having at least one HPV infection in our lifetime, and then most mm-hmm. of us just left this off. But 20% of us still have that persistent HPV that presents as a different type of cancer. So what's leading to the head and neck cancer presentation, you have to look at your screening tools, so number of lifetime sex partners, your previous STD infections, um, history of sex abuse, early age of first sexual intercourse, tobacco or cannabis use, um, immune suppression, so anyone who's immunocompromised, you're looking at stress levels. And then we're looking at just build up over time of this 
virus, which is opportunistic, which will present in this. Uh, it's just incredible. And doctors don't, or dentists, I should say, don't often talk about um, the oral exam when they are examining you and, and uh, you know, what they're looking for in particular, as you say, lesions can be throughout the mouth. And this can have actually occurred 25, 30 years previously? So this would have been the, the initial exposure to the virus, but the presentation mm -hmm. of it, so things that you look for if we're doing um, head and neck exams is historically we'd look for cancers associated with like the size of the tongue, anything um, in the mouth that was irregular, and that was not HPV. That's more associated with smoking and, and different elements there. Now, when we're looking at HPV, we're looking at the throat, and you're actually looking at, for lymph nodes on the neck. So if someone turns, you know how that sternocleidomastoid kind of pops out? And if you see mm -hmm. a lump or bump there that doesn't go away, that's something we're looking for. So part of the education program in the dentists here and across the states, North American-based, is doing a really good oral pharyngeal exam, oral cancer screening. And that's the key in coming in and seeing your dentist and your dental hygienist, which makes a phenomenal tag team. And so this type of oral HPV infection, it sounds almost very common and can actually be a cause of oropharyngeal cancer in both smokers and non-smokers, according to research. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. Absolutely. So we it, want to make sure just... that if there are risks, we have awareness that we have now a tool to prevent. So the great thing about things that have happened recently in Canada is that we have our new vaccine indication for Gardasil to address this. And Maureen, mm -hmm. this is the first time we get a chance to slay the dragon. This is the first time we actually get to prevent the disease of the patients coming in for head and neck reconstruction after this is all through. As much as I love my patients, I would prefer mm -hmm. never to see them, never to meet them in a clinical environment. So this is spectacular with what's happened. It, it certainly is. And um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, uh, the treatments and, and a little dive a little bit more into the prevention and talk about why we're seeing the, this increase uh, during this time. Dr. Cheryl Cable, maxillofacial prosthodontist and president of Canadian Association of Women Dentists and associate professor of the University of Alberta, joins me on the line. And we are talking about why it's important for you to have an oral examination by your dentist in terms of early detection for head and neck cancers. Dr. Cable, thank you so much for staying on the line. We're, we're actually seeing a uh, an increase in the sexually transmitted associated head and neck cancers in part and, and a decrease in the tobacco um, use related in part. Is this correct that tobacco use has declined? There have been so many campaigns to help people to quit smoking or, or stop chewing tobacco, but the number of sexual partners may have increased during the last 20 or 30 years for people increasing their risk of head and neck cancers. People would probably more associate this with smoking versus sex, would you say? Oh, I think everything you said is 100% bang on. Um, we need to make sure that, though, the people who've been exposed to this virus, we're not just talking about people who have acute exposure. This is chronic. So these are the patients, the individuals who are walking into our office who've had a lifetime of experience behind them. And when we look at our social norms, we look at people coming from all over the world into our offices. We have to make sure that we're protecting people and we're making sure they're educated on risk factors. So HPV, as we're exposed, it's a very, very transmissible virus. And again, you know, saliva, we're looking at kissing, we're looking at not just regular peck on the cheek kind of thing, but, but it's in the tonsils. And we have to make sure that we're able to prevent things from progressing, not just to oral pharyngeal cancer, but to the nine different kinds of, or six different kinds of cancers, the nine different types of viruses um, that are the most cancer-causing. And so by having more people 
coming into dental offices and, and having head and neck exams, which is part of a standard um, examination in dental offices, we can see if we can catch things. So as we have a stressed community, COVID's not been kind to any of us, that we need to make sure that if somebody has something that feels abnormal, that's not going away, you know, we're looking for things like a sore throat that doesn't go away, uh, difficulty in speaking, which is tough when you've got people catching COVID and you've got respiratory presentation, but also um, uh, numbness inside the mouth. And then again, any lumps or bumps in the neck that don't go away. So the more eyes that we have on individuals and the faster we can catch stuff, the better. Because the great thing is, Maureen, this is a really treatable disease. It responds wow. really, really well to radiation. But but as you say, screening is problematic, and we don't have the pap smear like we do um, for cervical cancer. So there, there's a big contrast there. Um, and, and largely as well, we don't talk about sex enough. <laughs> I do. But, no, um, and, no you know, and nobody thinks their dentist is going to talk about sex. But that's been such a big part of my conversation is it's not something that's uncomfortable. It's just something that's the reality of a risk. It's the same thing as talking about marijuana use and making sure that if somebody is smoking, then that's increasing their risks. So we look at different forms. This is not the place to judge anyone or to condemn or to make any subjective statement. It's everything we can do as a team, and that's really critical and key, is that the more people who can provide education to an individual is the better that individual has the chance to make the decision that's right for them. So so if now is not the time, oh, education Mm -hmm. is so important you know, and just being open to that as a clinician and being open to that as a parent. I have four kids, 14 and under, and I love the fact that they talk to their classmates about HPV and head and neck cancer. <laughs> and I realize, you know, it's that ripple effect. It's a ripple effect of, of normalcy, of making this part of our reality. Because if we can prevent one person, then, you know, that's phenomenal. That's our chance oh. to slay the dragon. Oh, absolutely. Prevention is so critical. It's just got such tremendous work that you're doing. Um, for those who have, sadly enough, been diagnosed with head and neck cancers, um, what are the treatments and, and what is the prognosis? So the treatment can range depending on how extensive the cancer is when it's detected. And so sometimes it can just be addressed with radiation um, and with that modality, it's um, quite impactful. It's, it responds really, really well. And then other patients, you will have to have maybe radiation first to shrink down the tumor size and then surgery. Um, very few patients, some will have chemotherapy, but it's the, the additive impact of the treatment. So radiation in the head and neck impacts all of our salivary glands, and people... You know, there's, a, there's this perception that your cancer treatment's done when you ring the bell in the cancer uh, treatment area after your chemotherapy and radiation, and that is such a joyous event. But these patients now, post-radiation, if the salivary glands were in the field, uh, have a permanently dry mouth. So what's the impact of that is then we have increase in cavities, and, and even though they may brush their teeth 10 times a day, they use fluoride, they'll start to lose their teeth. And that's such mm-hmm. a huge impact on quality of life. And if they have a big surgery, sometimes they're taking a part of the jaw. Patients are not able to sometimes not speak. These are big surgeries. So they'll be in the operating room anywhere between 10 and 20 hours. And this leads to ICU stay of up to a week. And so the cost of this incurred is not just there. Now it's dental rehabilitation. So if the patient loses their teeth, they can't wear just regular dentures because their mouth's dry and the friction between the the denture, the plastic base, causes chronic sores. So then we have to look at implant-retained options. And fortunately, some of the provinces and territories will have access so that this is covered for patients because there is a medical indication, but a lot Mm -hmm. do not. And some of them will mm-hmm. cover it one time. 
The average cost of these treatments, just the dentistry side alone, is averaging from 2018 to now $35,000, and it can range up to $90,000. So this wow. is such a huge impact that people don't talk about, you know, the treatment, which doesn't stop from the radiation surgery, but continues for function and quality of life. So the cost of the vaccine is so small in comparison. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's, you know, really preventive vaccines, you know, hopefully at a population level will start to prevent these cancers and, and help people avoid that initial infection by immunity, um, you know, oh. much earlier much, much earlier 100%. in life than having to go through everything you describe, which is just, just sounds absolutely horrific and should raise everybody's eyebrows out there. Like, you know what? Oh, um, I, yeah. Maureen, really it is so impactful when you see these patients and the quality of life uh, difference. So that's why, you know, Health Canada now has it for anyone between the ages of 9 and 45, there's the indication for the vaccine. But NACI, mm-hmm. oh, this is the great group, is nationalist, has no upper limit. So since April 11th, when um, the vaccine uh, Gardasil 9 came on label for head and neck indication with oral pharyngeal cancer, I've been writing at least one prescription a day. So dentists can write prescriptions. We can find the patients. We can have the conversation. And I think because we've got this, you know, great long-term relationship with individuals, it's about making sure we're catching the people who didn't get the vaccine at different stages. And then we can refer them to a pharmacist. Uh, We can make sure that as a team, we're trying to find as many people as possible to help prevent this from progressing. So, you know, it's not one person who's going to make the world a difference here, but it's going to be all of us together. That certainly is. Uh, it, it is fascinating. And you wouldn't think that you're going to have a conversation with your dentist about sex. I mean, a lot of people don't expect to have a conversation about sex with their doctors, let alone their dentist. But I am so glad that you are uh, opening the conversation, continuing the dialogue on this and raising awareness and you and your children educating. <laughs> Um, people about the increased risk for oropharyngeal cancer. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we have to keep pushing forward. You know, it's, again, up to the individual to make the decision, but at least we can open the door for conversation. So then people can go talk to their pharmacist. You know, you're going to go see your pharmacist on a regular basis to pick up. You can talk to your physician. You can talk to the school nurse and just making sure that this is right for you. And if there's any reason why not, then, you know, make sure you're protected. Make sure that you're protecting the ones you love moving forward and that education is so much power. You know, it's, again, I circle back to the slaying the dragon tool. This is such an incredible opportunity for us to prevent something that's 100% preventable. Yeah. It, and it doesn't, it's, it's just doesn't amazing. select. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your great work and your passion around the subject. I can hear it <laughs> loud and clear. So really appreciate you. your great work and for coming on the program, Dr. Cable. Nice to have thank you. Thank you so much. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Marie McGrath hosting this program for you. Thanks so much for joining me this evening. I thought I I thought that before I got on to clarify a few terms, I would actually read some of your text messages. All right. Dear Maureen, I really should be listening to your show every week. Yes, you should be. <laughs> what you said about masks in the previous sec- segment is really important. Thanks and keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Now we have an opposing view here. I don't, that first text, I don't know who sent that, but Will sent this one. Dear Maureen, wonder if you might address the discovery of microplastics in people's lungs and also touch on why when I Google who is the world's top doctor, Bill Gates comes up. Well, actually, when you Google the world's top doctor, you get Dr. William Abdu. 
of medical doctors, considered the number one doctor in the world. But if you Google, and then it's followed by world's top 100 doctors, 2021 top doctor, who's the number one doctor in India, the top 10 countries with the best doctors, but you keep going down there and you get, when you Google who's the most powerful doctor in the world, that's when you get Bill Gates is currently the top answer when you search who is the most powerful doctor in the world for this business mogul. But I actually didn't Google that, but I I will later and see what comes up anyway. And then somebody else said, (laughs) and none of these people are related, I'm sure. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for mentioning what Bill Gates said. (laughs) I believe he is one of the smartest people in the world. Next to you, of course. No, they didn't say that. In this world, in this world of information overload and ulterior motives, I believe he is one voice we should heed. I don't know who that one came from either. But anyway, interesting how you know people have different perspectives on different things that they hear on the radio. Um, we already mentioned, we already read Don's email. Um, here's somebody else who says, as they say, if you are anti-mask and lockdown, you are pro burying family, friends, and community. (laughs) Thanks to you both. I think that's you and me, um, Leo, (laughs) you and I taking charge tonight, running the show. All right. What else have I got here? I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to all of them. Um, dear Maureen, I've seen people in old age care homes and it's the worst thing that a person could live through. Of course, some people are okay in prison. It's not living and it's not life. Um, and then somebody else said, Hey Maureen, have you Googled your name recently? (laughs) Yes, I did. After I read this text, maybe you can pay the Google gods to move your name back up to the top of the search engine. P.S. Love your show. And that is from none other than Dawn. Um, but I did, Dawn. I Googled my name and my little description from my website, MaureenMcGrath.com, comes up. But um, I don't take to Googling my name typically. <laughs> I do have slightly better things to do in life. But, but that's okay. Um, like educating you, getting prepped for the show all week long. That's how long it takes. No, it doesn't really. (laughs) Because we're constantly uh, hearing about different health subjects and advances in science and medicine. And also as the pandemic morphs and changes and develops and uh, exists on the spectrum Something else exists on the spectrum, and that's gender. And there are many different genders to choose from, different gender identities, I should say. There's so much diversity in how we identify ourselves and the way we express our love for one another. Much like there's different kinds of love, we can become sexually and romantically attracted to our partners in different ways. Some people don't experience sexual or romantic attraction at all. But the relationship that we have with our own bodies as it relates to gender and sexual orientation can be a complicated one. We are all built differently. That's what makes us beautiful. And many of us come to realize aspects of our own gender in ways that can be exciting, complex, yet challenging. But the language around gender identity has evolved and we've learned more and more about gender expression, sexual orientation. And I feel it's very important for people, especially healthcare providers, to understand and and actually learn the different terms. Many people in my clinical practice will ask me, what does this mean? What does that mean? Gender non-binary, for example. Some people will not understand that. What is agender? Agender is a term that describes somebody who feels like they don't fit any gender at all. They may not ascribe to, which means they may not identify with, the gender binary of males and females. They don't feel comfortable with other gender variant terms either. 
I think most people are familiar with the term androgynous, but it describes someone who feels comfortable expressing themselves in a more gender neutral way. So they may actually express different aspects of masculinity and femininity. Some people, you might hear people say they demonstrate their, they're demonstrating their or expressing their feminine side, for example. And they may express themselves in different ways on a day-to-day basis, but they don't generally appear dramatically male or female. Cisgender is a term that describes somebody whose gender identity matches their assigned sex at birth. So that would be me, for example. If you were born female and identify as female, you're cisgender. Likewise, if you were born male and and identify as such, you're also cisgender. Intersex is an umbrella term, and it means between the sexes. So people who are intersex actually carry variations in their sexual and reproductive anatomy that differ from what is fully male or female. So a baby might be born with uh, genitalia that is not entirely male or entirely female. It might appear to be a combination of two, of both. They might have variations of the XX and XY chromosomes. And these conditions are rare, but they are referred to as disorders of sex differentiation or DSD. The language on this is evolving because many people find the term DSD derogatory. It is controversial because it implies intersex is a disorder in need of treatment rather than a biological variation. But the term intersex continues to be recognized by the LGBTQIA plus community and has gained more traction as an identity within the last decade. You might hear M2F or F2M. It's typically a medical abbreviation that describes a transition for a transgender person. And so that first letter, the M or the F, or in, in the M to F, the first letter M indicates somebody's assigned sex at birth. And then the last letter indicates their gender identity and expression. So the MTF, obviously, male to female. So non-binary, that's one or gender non-binary, means that somebody doesn't ascribe to the male-female binary. So instead of identifying as a male or a female, one identifies as being somewhere else on the gender spectrum. So if you identify as gender non-binary, you see gender as a spectrum. So you're basically saying that you don't buy into the two ends of the poles, if you will. In other words, people can be anywhere on that spectrum. These days, we're all talking about pronouns that you'll see on LinkedIn or you'll see on Twitter or Instagram, other social media platforms. It'll be she, her, they, them. Um, historically, we've been pretty binary, male, female. That's all that binary means. That's the way we approach using those pronouns to talk about those around us. But as the language evolved, lots of new creation, new ways of identifying how people feel about who they are. So there are other uses of pronouns and the uses have expanded to include gender neutral pronouns like they, them, as I mentioned, or XE, XEM, XYR, Zai, Zim, Zir, and there are many others as well. Transgender describes someone whose gender identity does not match their assigned sex at birth. They don't feel comfortable with their assigned sex at birth. It's not how they want to express themselves. This is inclusive of both binary, of both males and females, and non-binary gender identities. Some people are very open about being transgender, but some others may prefer to avoid that term entirely and simply exist as the gender that they are. And we call that passing. And that's okay. How anyone chooses to present themselves is entirely up to that person. There's a lot of transgender individuals 
who whose goal is to just be seen and be seen as the gender that they identify as. So they don't want to be called trans or transgender, a trans man or a trans woman. That process from of transitioning from your assigned sex at birth to your identified gender looks different for every single person based on their own individual experiences. That's what makes life beautiful. And that's what makes us all so different. And and if we were all the same, it would be so boring and so dull. But the first step to transitioning is called social transitioning. And that's when people start to express their gender identity by changing the way they present themselves at home or in public. They can change the way they dress and maybe add different accessories. They can alter their body language or their interests and activities. You may ask friends or family to refer to you or call you a different name or a pronoun that better fits your gender identity. Many people legally change their names. And this period of social transitioning may last months, years, or even a lifetime. Many people may want to go through a physical transition too, with the help of hormone replacement therapy or gender confirmation or gender affirming surgery. There is, there, this is required in many cases, according to the WPATH guidelines, the centers that require some period of social transition prior to receiving these healthcare services or, or surgeries. Oftentimes, puberty blockers are used to put a hold on puberty to allow more time for young people to actually identify and understand their gender identity. Hormone replacement therapy can be, for some people, an option so that they feel like they have fully transitioned. So there's lots of different interventions, lots of conservative measures like chest binders, voice therapy, hair removal to help to improve a person's gender expression. But some people still may want that gender affirming surgery or to have modifications to their breasts or top surgery is what it's called or or to modify the genitalia, sometimes referred to as bottom surgery. There are other surgical procedures as well that can modify the face, the voice, body hair, or other aspects of one's body. Anyway, these are just some of the um, different terms that we're using today so that for people who want to express themselves in a particular way, in a way that wasn't what they were assigned at birth, and it's fine and it's okay, and we need to be comfortable with all of these different terms, but you know, it's a change. And so education around this area, like every other aspect of health is critical. So wherever you are on your gender journey, whether you're at your destination or still figuring it out, making an effort to understand gender identity is something we all can do to create a more inclusive world. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.